Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 430 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 4, Leaving Skylab. You may recall, activating the station upon arrival was a challenge, but packing up to return home was also a major event that took several days. For Carr and his crew, this was the last planned visit but they left open the possibility of a return visit at some point in the future. On January 31, 1974, the crew received the updated deactivation and reentry checklist. The checklist was 15 feet long and had to be entered into the flight data file by hand. This was because laptops, emails, and digital processing were not yet in use during Skylab. The crew had to use pencils or pens to complete the checklist. This caused some good-natured ribbing from Carr, who said, quote, I understand you're going to teleprinter up the Old Testament tonight, end quote. Packing up the command module was just as challenging as unpacking it, which was done in conjunction with the closing down of a few last experiments. In zero gravity, it was hard to fit everything in the lockers, but as Carr noted, the suitcase method worked just as well in zero gravity as it does on Earth. If you force it, it will fit. Before leaving, the crew made sure to leave a welcome mat out for any potential future visitors. Although there were no plans for another Skylab mission, there was the hope that a crew of the space shuttle, which was expected to be operational well before Skylab deorbited, might come to check on America's first space station and even boost it to a higher orbit to extend its lifetime. A time capsule was prepared for a shuttle crew to return to Earth. The capsule contained a variety of materials that would allow scientists to study the effects of long-term exposure to the spacecraft's environment. 
Since the time capsule was left inside Skylab, when NASA vented the atmosphere after the crew left, the materials were exposed to vacuum. There were a few problems while preparing Skylab for unmanned operation. Ed Gibson recalled, quote, The frozen urine samples had to be put into an insulated container for their trip home. Each of these frozen samples, about the size of a very large ice cube, and often called urine sickles by the crew, had expanded just slightly beyond the size allotted for them in the return containers. Thus, I had a problem. Reentry was a few short hours away, and the whole sample return for a major experiment was in jeopardy. As beads of sweat seeped out, clung to me, and soaked my suit, out to the rescue came the old trusty Swiss army knife with its coarse file. The sharp plastic edges on the entry lips of the containers were all then filed down to a bullnose so that the urine sickles could be forced into each container with only minimal damage. To say the least, I was elated that the knife was on board. Because of the concern for inhaling particles, we were not allowed to have files in the toolkit, but the one in the Swiss Army knife had slipped by detection. End quote. In the midst of these busy preparations to leave Skylab, the crew began speculating on its future. The consensus was Skylab was a great office, lab, and home that had set the bar high for all space stations to come, and they believed that in another three to six years, the current Skylab would be replaced by either Skylab B, which is now unfortunately cut up and displayed in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., or another space station, which would be much easier and cheaper to build due to all the Skylab experience that NASA now had. The crew believed all they would need was a few large tanks, a couple of docking ports, a door for spacewalks, some first-class experiments, three or four gyros to stabilize it all, and a few large solar panels hung on the outside for electricity. What could be easier? and all of the parts could be off the shelf. That was what the crew wanted and believed would happen. But that possibility was eliminated when it was decided to throw away the booster capabilities that this country had paid so dearly for in Apollo and trust the future on only one access to space, the shuttle. Even though it seemed so simple at the time, the history of pioneering tells us that we shouldn't expect progress to take place in a straight line. There are lots of starts and fits and stops. Always remember, NASA's budget depends on the whims of politicians. Perhaps the most shocking example of this was when President Obama 
left the United States with no access to space except by the goodwill of the Russians. I wonder what this crew would have thought about that. But I digress. As the end of the mission drew nearer, Pogue recalled, quote, The last six weeks of the flight were very pleasant for me for two reasons. One, we had achieved the skill level sufficient to do the job quickly and accurately. And second, I no longer suffered from the head congestion that had plagued me for about the first six weeks of the flight. Midway through the mission, it didn't seem to bother me much, but became more like a low-grade headache that doesn't really hurt very much, even though it still slightly decreases your efficiency. We all had a much better feeling about the whole flight toward the end. In fact, they asked us if we would stay up for another 10 days. James Fletcher, the administrator, had suggested it. Mentally, we were prepared to come back, but more importantly, we did not have any food left. Even though we probably could have scraped together enough for a few more days, but we came back on schedule after 84 days, end quote. Gibson recalled, quote, Medically, there were at least two reasons for our feeling so good at the end of the mission. After our bone marrow greatly slowed its production of red blood cells because our hemoglobin concentration had gone up in the first few days of the mission, when we lost about three pounds of plasma from our circulating blood volume, it took a while for the hemoglobin concentration to drop low enough to trigger red blood cell production again. That production brought our circulating red cell mass back to normal, if not higher, toward the end of our flight. Also, the tone of our cardiovascular systems had improved as measured by our response to the lower body negative pressure system, which saw us nearly pass out about midway through our mission before we significantly improved. From a personal standpoint, I would have liked to stay longer. I had come to think of our space station as an average three-bedroom home, just 270 miles high and whistling over the earth at five miles a second. It felt so solid, so secure, that it didn't really feel like flying at all until we left it in our re-entry vehicle. Then it felt just like leaving my home down here, sliding into a sports car and accelerating back onto the road again. It was a comfortable home for sure, and I would have been content to live there for many years if I had friends and family along, and maybe a good pizza delivery. End quote. Although the media's early criticism of the Skylab 4 crew had lasting repercussions for their reputation, their accomplishments were not as widely reported. As the mission came to a close, it became one of the first since the early Gemini missions not to receive extensive media coverage, 
In fact, the media did not even cover the crew's return to Earth after they set a world record for time spent in space. Gibson commented on this, saying, quote, At the time it happened, because I was not looking at it from the outside, people were making a big deal out of it being an exception. But once I thought about it, after a couple of months, I realized that, in a way, it was good. We were trying to make space to be more commonplace and space operations to be more accepted because they are being done repetitively and routinely. People can't be sitting on the edge of their chairs at all the time, especially during long space station operations. So it's only natural that people's attention would drop off. I thought, well, maybe we've reached a point in the space program where it's become more mature and the lack of day-to-day interest is only natural. So let's accept it and move on. End quote. Now, we have reached the last day in orbit for this crew. Here is the final wake-up call for Skylab. Crew is about seven minutes away from being awakened over Honeysuckle on their last day in space, last day of the Skylab mission. On today's execute package, we have a number of comments from the people on Earth to the people of Skylab. A poem. Skylab is history now, and mountains of data are to be argued and published, and argued and published again. And you who have given some of your lives, and had some of your lives unwillingly taken by her, are free to enjoy the sun. Welcome back to Earth. Signed, Houston. And then from the medical folks here, a comment, a job well done from the medical community, and thanks for all of the data. The analysis will keep us busy for some time. Also, the Skylab four astronauts are candidates for the Guinness Book of Records. Most food consumed in pounds. Commander Carr consumed 511 pounds. Science pilot Ed Gibson, 436 pounds. Pilot Bill Pogue, 558 pounds. Most water intake in gallons. Commander Carr, 54.45 gallons. Ed Gibson, 60.54 gallons. Bill Pogue, 73.36 gallons. Most urine output in gallons. Commander Carr, 20.66. Ed Gibson, 21.01. Bill Pogue, 24.48. Most feces is still to be determined according to the flight surgeon here. Not sure that would go in the Guinness Book of Records anyway. Well, it's lonesome in this old town. Everybody puts me down. I'm a face without a name. Just walking in the rain, going back. Sleep to get. 
Oh, I think ranging from uh, not so good to pretty good. I got uh, five hours. Okay, great. Still got about three. Ed Houston. Hello, Story. <laughs> Hello, Ed. Uh, it's kind of an anticlimax to what we played before. As the crew was leaving Skylab, NASA called Bill Pogue to do one more task. Pogue recalled this, quote, We had lost a coolant loop between the second and the third missions, so one of the first things I had to do when we arrived was to replenish and recharge the glycol solution in the failed coolant loop. It was that loop that we used for our water-cooled long johns that we wore under our spacesuits on EVA. So I was really interested that that worked. We got it fixed really quickly, but just as I closed the hatch as we were leaving, the other loop failed. They asked if I wanted to go back in to fix it. I asked why. Capcom Bob Crippen voiced the opinion of the ground, saying, Say goodbye for us. She's been a good bird. End quote. After the crew entered the command module, they went through a long series of involved procedures. They were almost euphoric all during this period. Prior to departing Skylab on February 8, 1974, the crew fired the reaction control system on the service module to increase the Skylab's orbit, extending its lifetime allowing it to remain in orbit for the next eight years, they hoped. Skylab was now expected to remain in orbit until at least 1981 or 1982. Inform yourself we can go ahead and do the RCS uh, hot fire check. Okay. Okay, we're ready for it when you are, Jim. systems aboard the service module working perfectly. All four of those quads were fired over Hawaii. Guidance officer here very pleased. Flight controller very pleased too. That means after three months of inactivity, the CSM is still working perfectly. As the crew undocked, they performed a fly-around inspection before departing for the trip home. One of them said, quote, it's been a good home. I hate to think we're the last guys to use it. End quote. Gibson recalled, quote, 
Of course, we did a fly around, and I took about 75 pictures of Skylab as we went around for the last time. When we undocked and made one trip around Skylab to photograph its conditions, it was obvious that the sun's ultraviolet light had greatly discolored all surfaces. What was white pre-flight was now tan. Even the white sunshade sail erected by the second crew had turned a golden tan, with one notable exception. As we maneuvered over the surface that faced toward the sun, both sunshades rippled and waved in the gas stream from our reaction control thrusters. The sail erected by the second crew still displayed the creases from when it had been tightly folded in its stowage container before Jack and Owen pulled it out and hoisted it up the twin pole supports. Jack had done a great job of unsticking and unfolding the sail, an anticipated chore, except for one fold that now opened up under the wind gust of our thrusters. Like light from a cracked door, the material inside the fold beamed back a stark white in contrast to its surroundings, a feature readily apparent in pictures today. End quote. Uh, Bob, I'm going to go ahead and load uh, P-30 for the separation berth. Okie doke. 
got two shades of brown, one very dark and one uh, just about a light tan. Roger, copy, that's on the uh, parasol, right? That's right. Been a good home, Crip. Yeah, sounds like it. You guys occupied it long enough. Skylab Houston, everything's looking good here. You are go for the set maneuver. Roger, Crip. Hey, Crip, you can tell Alpine and guys that they did a great job putting that sail up. It's very symmetric. Very good. I'm sure they'll appreciate the uh, words on their good work. Certainly helped uh, have it out there keep you comfortable. Yeah, there's only one little spot that's uh, not too well covered, and uh, unfortunately it was right by my sleep compartment. Yeah, they arranged that specifically for you, Ed. I believe it. The only thing to look forward to, Crip, is a bigger and better one. Roger that. It's been a real useful machine, Crip. I hate to think we're the last guys to use it. Yes, yes. Well, it certainly, uh, certainly did a good job. Served its purpose. Along with some real fine guys running it for us up there, we appreciate all the good work. That's the whole NASA team that did that. Bill Pogue recalled, quote, Pretty soon after the fly-around, we could see Skylab going away. After we did the first deorbit burn, which brought us down to about 125 miles, I remember thinking that after looking at Earth from 270 miles for several months, it was almost like hedge hopping at 125 miles, where you would perceive the ground going by a lot faster. Almost everything worked out quite well, except that we did have a problem with the reaction control system in the command module. One of our two sets of attitude control jets, called rings, had already lost pressure and had to be deactivated. The official record says that they told us to put our oxygen mask on at this point, but we never heard the transmission, so we never had them on. The problem came after we separated from the service module. I looked over at Jerry as he was moving the hand controller to the right entry attitude, which we absolutely had to be at for re-entry to avoid landing in the wrong location or being cremated before our time, and nothing was helping. I yelled, go direct. Direct is a mode that is entered by going to the hard stops on the hand controller which bypasses all the black boxes and puts the juice directly to the solenoids controlling the propellants in the reaction control jets. It worked. We got close to the right entry attitude and threw it into autopilot, which steered us during re-entry. Here's the clip of some of those events. Skylab Houston, we're ALS to the arrival. Back up for about 10 minutes, are you ready? clearing, we're back to burn. Understand you got the burn. We're back to burn.
After 84 days, 1 hour, 15 minutes, and 32 seconds, Carr, Gibson, and Pogue were back on Earth just under 5 hours after undocking. The capsule landed upside down in the Pacific Ocean, but the self-riding bag turned it upright so that the recovery ship could pick it up. And here is the clip of that splashdown.
scan module is reported in stable two position, which means it has uh, flipped over. Command module is coming up now. The helicopter can see one of the uprighting bags. As soon as the uh, command module reaches stable one, we should get uh, communications between the crew and the recovery forces. module is in stable one now and the apex is up and we're starting to get some communications between the crew aboard uh, the command module and recovery forces. Hal Gibson described reentry and splashdown. Quote, At first, reentry was like living inside a purple neon tube whose brightness gradually increased when we began colliding with air molecules in the upper atmosphere at Mach 25. About the time we got the 0.05 G light, I felt myself start to tumble but in no specific direction. Strange, I thought, but then my vestibular system had not felt linear acceleration for 84 days, and my brain was trying to figure out how to interpret these faint murmurs coming from my inner ears. As the G's increased, this feeling of tumbling was replaced by the strong sensation of deceleration that eventually hit over four G's. The violet glow had progressed to a white-hot flame. The G's and the turbulence continued to build, and it was now more like living inside a vibrating blast furnace. The flames from the heat shield streamed by my window and out behind us. Sitting in the center seat, I could watch the roll thrusters fire as the computer rolled the spacecraft to bring us down precisely on target, exactly three miles from the USS New Orleans, the aircraft carrier that waited to pick us up. Eventually, the light and turbulence subsided. A firm explosion above our heads told us the nose cone ring had departed and small drogue chutes streamed out to stabilize us. At 10,000 feet, the drogues also departed and the mains appeared. At first, they were held partially closed or reefed, and then they billowed out to three good, fully deployed chutes, which we were all happy to see. 
but I felt confused. Once on the mains, we were obviously pulling only 1G, but then why did it feel like we were pulling 3Gs? We splashed down onto a calm sea with no wind. However, we still ended up in what NASA called Stable 2. Translated, that means that we were hanging upside down in the straps, bobbing up and down in the water in a closed, damp cabin with the heat of the reentry soaking back in. For me, the most uncomfortable part of the whole flight or recovery. Before we got the balloons inflated that would ride us, my mind flashed back to our training when we practiced what we would do if we remained in stable two and had to exit the spacecraft by ourselves. We did the training in the command module mock-up, very much like the real one in the water tank in Houston. End quote. Jerry Carr recalled, quote, When we got down on the deck, we were hoisted aboard the aircraft carrier, and everybody was in pretty good shape. It appears that the first astronaut to come out will be Dr. Ed Gibson. He's in the center seat and would be the logical one to come out first. I believe we're ready now. Dr. Bichard, Bill Richmond now leaning in, talking to Ed Gibson. There, I can see Ed Gibson in the hatch. Big smile. He's got his cap. Doctors all back out on the platform now. Bill Richmond uh, leaning in with the last word for Ed Gibson. And here he is, he's coming out through the hatch now. Stands for just a moment in the open hatch. Getting his land legs back. Big smile and a wave. And a cheer goes up on the ship. Ed says, I feel great. Yeah, he's being helped in his chair. Oh, he's, uh, it doesn't appear to be as wobbly as I thought he might be. Uh, he's uh, uh, being helped there. He's, he's seated now on this platform. And Bill Pogue is now, uh, with a beard, seated in the hatch and is uh, coming out now. Yeah, he's seated in the hatch, with both feet on the platform. Sit there for just a minute, he stands up rather carefully. He's got a good beard. He's now talking to Dr. Ed Richard. And a smile and a laugh. I don't know what they said to make him laugh. The waves and the cheer on the, on the hangar deck here of New Orleans. Bill Pogue now being helped to his chair. And the ship is rolling just a bit. Got a handshake all around. And he's seated in the middle chair. And now, Jerry Carr is in the hatch with another big beard. He uh, sits in the hatch. He's chatting with the doctors. And they're all laughing. Now he's standing up. 
biggest excitement during re-entry was when Jerry Carr moved the hand controller and nothing happened. It was later discovered that Jerry had accidentally shut off all of the circuit breakers for the command module reaction control thrusters instead of those for the service module, which were supposed to be turned off to avoid arcing when the guillotine cut the wires between the modules before they were separated. The command module breakers were located directly above those for the service module. Jerry was floating slightly higher in zero gravity than he had been during the simulations on Earth three months prior, and it was dark. So it was an easy mistake to make. Human factors should dictate that sets of breakers like these should not be placed next to each other if a time-critical safety-of-flight procedure is required, as Jerry simply pulled the wrong ones, which was an easy error to make. Fortunately, everything turned out fine. I also have an update on the station. Shortly after the last crew undocked and departed for home, The engineering test began on the orbital workshop and continued for the next 32 hours. Internal pressure was reduced to 0.5 PSIA and was allowed to decay. Attempts to power up gyro number 1 failed, indicating seized bearing wheels. Controllers ran a series of electrical tests and each battery in the airlock module was discharged down to 30 before a test was run on the coolant loop system. After beginning the power down sequence, it took about two months to completely deplete the oxygen-nitrogen environment, after which the station was oriented to a gravity gradient with the multi-port docking adapter facing out to space and the thermal control system and gyros were shut down. Also, the last commands to turn off the telemetry were sent to the station. 
this is Skylab Control. That uh, ends the commentary from the recovery ship, uh, the USS New Orleans. Crew uh, has entered the uh, mobile laboratories for uh, medical examination. Very noisy here in the control center right now as uh, everyone is shaking hands, puffing away at cigars. The uh, plaque has been hung containing uh, this crew's uh, patch. It's been hung on the wall of the uh, second floor mission control room along with the plaques for the Skylab program. Skylab's uh, two and three, and the Mission Control Center uh, patch. On the large screen, uh, the front of the control room was displayed a large reproduction of the Mission Control Center patch with the three crew patches superimposed on, on that. And the words, welcome home, Skylab. Man in space teamed with man on Earth for science to benefit all mankind. So that display has now changed uh, to another one. Reproduct separate reproductions of the four uh, crew patches. And it reads, Skylab, the world's largest space station, man's longest venture into space, improved understanding of the universe, rediscovery of the planet Earth, Accomplishment of major space vehicle repair, man, machine, and spirit in a truly incredible accomplishment. The third Skylab crew had completed man's longest space mission, spending 85 days in space. The Skylab program had answered many questions in achieving all of its mission goals. Man can live in space for extended periods. He can perform useful work on board and make necessary repairs of the space station. Skylab had shown that manufacturing, experimentation, and testing can be conducted in an orbital environment. Studies of the Earth take on a new dimension when conducted from space. In addition, an unrestricted view of solar and celestial phenomena is offered from an orbiting laboratory. Skylab. America's first manned space station was the forerunner of the next space lab to be flown in NASA's shuttle program. The work projects being planned for shuttle missions will be greatly influenced by the results obtained from the three highly successful manned missions in NASA's Skylab program.
Happy New Year and salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 430 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 4, Leaving Skylab. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, January 20th. 2024. That's two weeks. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 249 are available on the archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive should be available on most podcatchers, and you do have to put in the word archive. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. You can also follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash History. In Afterthoughts, as always, I apologize for my mispronunciation. Also apologize for going so long. I couldn't find a good jumping off point, so I'll try not to make my comments very long here. What a unique problem. Urine sickles. Hmm. It's a good thing you had the Swiss Army knife. Now, before anyone emails and asks, <laughs> I do not have the data on who put out the most feces. <laughs> I assume it's the one who ate the most food, but that is unverified. I mentioned a possible space shuttle visit to Skylab, the possibility of another crew, a Skylab 5 type situation, and the possibility of a sister station called Skylab B. I plan to explore those topics next time in an episode called Skylab 5. Finally, in personal news, the week of Christmas, would you believe it, I got sick again. This time it seemed like the stomach flu or perhaps it was the final remnants of COVID. Anyway, I was on my back in bed on Christmas Day. And we had to delay our family uh, Christmas to the following Friday, which was kind of a downer. It seems like everyone around here is getting sick or recovering. Ah, but there is good news. My sense of smell has returned. My mother-in-law is uh, about the same as last time, no setbacks, but she does continue to acquire 24-7 accompaniment. The main goal is still for her to reach the point where she doesn't need the 24-7 coverage. Okay, moving on to financial. For 2023, our total unique donors reached 376. That is four less than last year. And I want to thank all of those donors, and especially the repeat donors who sent in some more. I really appreciate that. It's so nice of you to do that. The uh, total money 
that was donated was about $413 less than last year. And I was thinking it was going to be about 1000 less. So it was not as bad as I thought it would be due to the fact that we had some last-minute donations come in. Over the past fortnight, we received 13 new donations and pledges for 2023. And I would like to thank Matt and Joan O. from Texas who donated at the Starship level and earned a shooting star emoji. Robin P. donated at the Salute Skylab level and earned a shooting star emoji. Chris B. from Pennsylvania donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Jim from Franklin, Tennessee donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Rob B. donated at the Gemini level. Alan M. from Michigan sent in another donation and moved to the Soyuz level. Oleg S. from Germany donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Steve S. donated at the Mercury level. Tom L. donated at the Vostok level. Marcus S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level and earned an alien emoji. DB increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Megan T. increased her pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. And Tom L. from Sweden pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. We had two donations for 2024, which came in, and I want to thank John N., who donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned an alien emoji, and Steve S., who donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Our Patreon donors are currently at 225. That is down five from last month. Hopefully we will get some of those back or someone to replace them before the end of the month. Our total unique donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2024, have reached 227. With a goal, what is my goal going to be? To reach, let's, let's make a goal of reaching 400 for this year. Let's see if we can make 400 for 2024. So if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for almost 11 years, we're going to celebrate that in next month. Without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Click on, on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check. Donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. We have selected the 11th year of support longevity emoji. And we will be getting uh, those up soon for 2024. We have to do some transferring over and we don't have the 2024 donors page up yet. But we'll get that up soon. The emoji for 11 years of support is a striking red emoji with two giant exclamation points meant to resemble the number 
11. Hmm. Mrs. SRH picked that one out. If you are unable to support financially, it would help if you can uh, retweet the post on Twitter, now known as X, or repost my Facebook post, or give a good old five-star review on your podcatcher, like Spotify or iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And uh, I haven't gone over this in at least a year, so I'm going to go over this again. All supporters of the podcast are rewarded in at least four ways. Number one, contributors' names are added on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. There are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions. That's what I'm talking about with these emojis, folks. You get them next to your name on the donor's page. Go check that out at spacerockethistory.com. Click on the donor's page tab. Contributors receive a thank you message from yours truly. Contributors are recognized on the podcast. And contributors are automatically entered in the fortnightly giveaway. Now, it is my distinct pleasure to hand it over to Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Edward Nemechek. Edward Nemechek, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who contributed in 2023 and those who have started 2024 with us. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu. Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, the Internet Archive, and Flickr. And that's all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 431 posted on or about January 20th. Happy New Year, everyone, and so long for now.